Please turn with me to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 26. Uh, you can also follow along on page 8 of your bulletin. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he, left, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. When Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and try to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to think to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. This is the word of God. <clears throat> For the past month, uh, we've been looking at the gospel according to Luke. And in this chapter, uh, the, the author, who is Luke, he's now showing us what kind of salvation, what kind of savior Jesus is. Jesus said, I came to, to set the captives free, the prisoners free. I came to save. And so uh, this passage, we see three mini narratives, three incidents in this passage that are going to show us Jesus Christ is the Savior 
and what that salvation actually means. It's pretty easy to remember. I'm going to give you three points. Uh, the gospel, uh, Jesus' salvation, is inward, outward, and upward. Inward, outward, and upward. Uh, pretty simple to remember. It's so full. His salvation is so rich that it spans every dimension of our lives, inward, outwardly, and upwardly. First, we're going to look at inward. And we see this through the narrative of Jesus' encounter with Peter. In verse 1, Jesus is surrounded by these people, by a lake. <clears throat> and in verse 2, he sees two boats that are left by their owners. These owners were fishermen who were washing their nets. And so in verse 3, he gets into the boat, the one that's owned by Simon. That's Peter. And uh, he asks them to pull away from the shore. And he starts teaching the people by the, by the lake uh, from this boat. Now in verse 4, when he's finished, he tells Peter to go out into the deep and to let down his nets. In verse 5, we know that they haven't been able to catch any fish all night. Peter's pretty much like, oh, well, there's nothing, but fine, I'm going to do it. Uh, you're the master. I'm going to do what you're telling me to do. Verse 6, he lets down his nets, and there he experiences the biggest haul of fish, the biggest catch of fish that he's ever seen. It's so big that Peter's boat alone couldn't handle it, and so he needed help from his second boat, the partner boat. And in verse 7, there was so much fish that both boats were full, and they were both sinking. Now, in verse 8, he's looking at Jesus, and it hits Peter. And how does he respond? He falls at Jesus' feet, and he says, get away from me. I am a sinful man. And in verse 10, Jesus, essentially what he says is, get away from you. I want you to follow me. And they do. They leave everything behind. Notice, up until this point, this man's called Simon. But in verse 8, in this narrative, there's a unique distinction because he's called Simon Peter. You see this only uh, one time in the entire gospel according to Luke in this passage. What, what's Luke trying to show us? Luke's trying to indicate for us that before he was Simon, now he's Simon Peter, and from this point on, you see he's called Peter. Uh, there's a transformation happening. There's a change. What do we mean by that? A real encounter with Jesus doesn't just mark a ticket to heaven that's what we learned or that's what we thought growing up. It's not just forgiveness. It doesn't even just bring you closer to God. It transforms you. It transforms you. That's what's happening to Peter. How? One, Peter says, get away from me. In other words, verse 9, there's this big, large catch, of, there's this large catch of fish. Because of that large catch of fish, Peter starts to see who Jesus really was. And, and everything that Jesus is teaching, everything he's saying, Peter must have believed because immediately like an instinct, instinctively he says, don't come near me. Why? I'm a sinner. Well, wouldn't that be the goal, to get near God, to get closer to God? Rudolf Otto, he's a German philosopher. In the earlier part of the 20th century, he wrote a book, probably his most seminal piece of work. It's called The Idea of the Holy. And there, in this book, he talks about the notion of holiness as something greater than just about moral purity. What he says, what he describes holiness, he says it's a sense of when you encounter something that's wholly other than yourself. You see, in one hand, when you encounter something that's brilliant, when you encounter someone that's beautiful, there's this attraction, there's this fascination. You want to be near that person. Like a fire. A fire is brilliant. A fire is beautiful. Uh, it's very, a fire is attractive. But on the other hand, when you get too close to the fire, that brilliance starts to consume you. That beauty starts to consume you. There's, there's an attraction. There's a fascination. There's an illumination. And it starts to illumine your flaws and your imperfections and your sins. And at some point, if you get too close, 
that fire starts to consume you. And so even though on one hand you're attracted by the idea of holy, and we all are, we're attracted by beautiful people, by brilliant people, on the other hand, we're equally repelled. We are terrified. Uh, Otto calls it the numinous tremendum. We are terrified by the numinous, terrified by the idea of something holy coming near, and that's what's going on with Peter. Get away from me, he says. Why? Because Peter knew that he had just encountered a holy God. Now, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah experiences an encounter with a holy God. Isaiah is in a room, and that room becomes filled with the royal train of God. And the angels are nearby. They cover their faces, and they cry, holy, holy, holy. You need to understand this. You see, in the English language, there, uh, there are distinct superlatives in our language. Something can be good, something can be better, and something can be best. But in the Hebrew language, they don't do superlatives that way. In Hebrew, your repetition of a particular word expresses the superlative. So you say something once, and then you repeat it. That means nothing beats this. But you never say something three times. You never do repetition in a way where you say the word three times. Three times in the Bible represents completeness, represents perfection. So when the angels cry holy, they don't just say he's holy. They don't say God is just holy, holy. They say God is holy, holy, holy. It's the only threefold superlative expression in the entire Bible. What does Isaiah do? In the presence of God, he cries out, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He's saying, I'm unclean, woe is me, I'm cursed, I'm dead, because I'm a sinner. When you encounter holiness, you realize in an instant how sinful and flawed you are. I mean, ever since middle school, we understand what it's like to be around people who who we find attractive. We can't stop thinking about them, we can't stop admiring them, their beauty, we wanna be near them, we wanna be close to them, ah! But when that person actually comes near to you, we're utterly terrified, why? because of the idea of the holy, because their brilliance is so brilliant. It exposes our flaws. We feel inadequate, we feel insecure, because their beauty is so beautiful, it consumes us. We feel inadequate. We feel like we just wanna hide away, we wanna shrivel up. And if that's how it is in middle school, with finite creatures, how much more when you get close to an infinite God who has infinite wisdom, infinite beauty, infinite brilliance, infinite power. If you don't see that brilliance, and that beauty every day in the God of the Bible, if you don't see that God of the Bible every day, then something is keeping you from seeing the real God. And if you think you see the real God, but your own sins and your own insecurities and your guilt and your inadequacies are not more real to you as a result, then you're probably not seeing the real God of the Bible because if you do, when you do, when you do, any sense of power, any sense of status, any sense of intelligence that you have will be like an illusion. God's wisdom shows us how foolish we are. God's purity shows us how unclean and guilty we are. God's beauty shows us how inadequate and ugly we are. God's power shows us how weak and helpless we are. God's holiness shows us how sinful we are. Yet the moment that Peter says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Look what Jesus says, verse 10, do not be afraid. He knows, he knows. 
And he pretty much says, follow me. I want you to follow me. Be close to me. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, here's a bunch of rules then, Peter. In order for you to live up to following me, I want you to follow these rules. I need, I need you to do better. I need you to do better than you've been, Peter. Peter's saying, go away. My sin is greater than I could ever imagine. And Jesus responds, well, I'm calling you. And my calling is higher and broader and greater than you could ever dream. I'm not calling you to catch fish. Those days are over, Peter. There's a greater catch, a greater mission in store for you. Verse 11, that call to follow Jesus, it's to live with Jesus, to walk with Jesus. You see, when you become a disciple of Jesus, in the ancient times, disciples of of anybody were called the people of the dust because you walked so close to your rabbi, you walked so close to your teacher that, that the dust from his feet would collect on you. And so these people were called at one point the people of the dust. That's how close he wants you to be. He says, I want to live with you, Peter. I want to grow with you. Remember, this is God. On one hand, that is holy, holy, holy. And yet he says, I want you to follow me. I want to train you. I want to shape you. I want to grow you. I want to be with you. Only a real encounter with Jesus takes you all the way down to the depths of your sin, to the death, and then elevates you to the heights of of his grace and his brilliance and his beauty. The gospel, gospel transforms our identity. So we move away from relying on our own works. We move away from relying on our own performance. But you see, because we see even at our best, it's insufficient. Why? Because if you see the real Jesus, if you know the real Jesus, holy, holy, holy. You know, even at your best, we are sinful, sinful, sinful. And so the sum of all of our works, the sum of all of our good performance, it will never define you. It can't define you. But here's a problem. Some of y'all think you're so good at what you do that you can't let all that go. It's what defines you. One day, because today, either you're going to say today, get away from me, or Jesus will say, get away from me. The gospel shows us that God chose us not because of our intelligence and wealth and success and status, but despite our intelligence and wealth and success and status. This is the end of arrogance. This is the end of snobbishness. This is the end of you comparing yourself to another person. This is the end of jealousy, you see? And then what happens? Verse 11, they left everything and they followed Jesus. What did they leave? What did they leave behind? Their boats? Yes. The nets, yes, lots of debt. But think about this. This is the greatest catch of fish that Peter has ever seen that anybody in that region probably ever experienced in their lives. And Peter just left it all behind. He's leaving behind his livelihood. He's leaving behind the largest sum of wealth. We talk about, but this is what it's all about, getting wealth, gaining wealth, gaining a reputation for being good at what you do. He would have had a reputation of being a great fisherman. This is the height of Peter's career. But Jesus calls him. And he leaves. He leaves it all behind. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying I want you to leave your careers. I'm not saying that I want you to give all your money away. The Bible never says that actually, but in a sense. What does this mean? What does this mean when Jesus Christ enters your life? It's not meant to just move you or to make you feel good. It's supposed to change all of your priorities. World-renowned philosopher Charles Taylor, he said that the problem with our world today 
See, in the ancient times, everyone knew that holiness came from outside, that the holiest and the sacred is outside of us. That ultimate beauty, that ultimate brilliance is outside of us. But today, we think that the sacred is inside. We think that, that the sacred and the beautiful and the special is inside. So the key and the goal of our lives is to discover what is sacred and what is special and what is unique in you. And so our pursuits, self-discovery, success, that becomes our priority. Look, some of you, if you're honest, you will admit that your work and your wealth and your status are more important to, than Jesus than you're willing to let on. How do you know that? Because you can't put it in their place. You can't put them in their place because they lord over your life. They rule you. And so because they rule you, they rule your days and they rule your evenings, your work and your status and your wealth, your friendships, your relationships, that desire for intimacy, it's all you think about. It rules your evenings, dictates your weekdays, your weekends, your Sundays, your community group nights. It controls your mood and your dispositions and it will eventually rule over your family and your homes. It will rule over who you choose to be friends with and who you reject. It will rule over your view of God and your view of the church. How do you get over this? How could you possibly get over this? What does Jesus say to Peter? He says, I want you to leave your fish behind. I'm calling you to the greatest catch of your life with the net of my love and my grace. That is the mission I'm calling you to. The only way you're ever gonna be able to leave your agenda is you take on a greater agenda. The only way that you will ever be able to leave your mission your personal mission is if you discover a greater mission. When Jesus Christ enters into your life, he will transform your priorities because your agenda, your identity, the gospel changes all of that inwardly. Now, secondly, the gospel changes us outwardly. And we see this in the second narrative with the leper. <clears throat> now, leprosy, if you're working in the medical profession, you may know this. Leprosy is referred to as Hansen's disease. But in the Bible, it may be Hansen's disease, oftentimes it is, or it's really a wide range of other skin disorders. Either way, many of them were contagious, and so if you were diagnosed with leprosy, you were often placed, or most often placed, on the outskirts or the outside of the city. And usually, there were civil laws to protect the people inside the city from people like lepers. Usually, it went against civil law then to even touch a leper. And so a leper, I mean, at one point, this man had a family. At one point, this man had children, possibly. At one point, this man probably had a wife. At one point, this, this man had friends. And yet now, this leper uh, was, was really unable ever to come into contact with people around him. And so, and there were especially laws uh, that went, uh, there were, especially when it gets religious law, to touch a person who had leprosy. Because it made you ceremonially unclean. You were never allowed to enter the temple. So if you had leprosy, this man has never worshipped for a long time. And if you touch a leper, there were civil rituals. There were ceremonial rituals that you had to go through to cleanse yourself. And so lepers, in the, in the presence of other people, they often had to yell unclean as they're walking in an area where there were public, uh, in a public square where there were people around. They had to yell unclean. Can you imagine the humiliation? And just the emotional, what it does to you emotionally and psychologically to tell people to stay away from you because they shouldn't touch you, they shouldn't come near you because of your condition. So lepers, they, they were wasting away. They were wasting away physically, but they were wasting away socially and religiously. 
from a civil perspective, they were cast out, they were outside the city, they were poor. But think about this, because of their illness, they were completely cut off from people, their family and their friends. There was no human touch. Most of them had probably, they lacked human touch for years. There was no human care, and so they were completely isolated. And remember, as social animals, as social animals, human beings, they need to be around people or else they will lose their sanity. And on top of that, I mean, the humiliation of the condition. Uh, all the while, as you're roaming around, enduring the shrieks and the gasps, the emotional pain that comes from the disdain of other people, the humiliation that comes from your condition. This man breaks through, I mean, he is risking his life uh, to get to Jesus. But when he gets to Jesus, when he gets to Jesus, he says, he says, you know, he, he's, he's breaking through the crowd. He says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He's begging Jesus. And notice Jesus' response, verse 13. He touches the man, and he speaks to the man. He says, I'm, I'm willing. Be clean. And he saves him. What do you learn from this? One, when Jesus Christ heals you, he's concerned for every part of you. The text says, in your NIV 1984 versions that we read, it says that he, Jesus reached out. He's reaching out to the man. But a more accurate translation uh, from the Greek is the English Standard Version, the ESV. It says that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched the man. Notice, Jesus never has to touch anybody to heal them. He could just heal somebody at his word. Then why does he feel like he needs to touch the leper? He's healing him physically, but he's also healing him emotionally and psychologically by touching him, by speaking to him, by acknowledging him and affirming him. Remember, this man is outside of every circle. He's cast out of every ring. But in verse 14, Jesus says, I want you to go to a priest. That's a religious leader. I want you to offer sacrifices for cleansing. That's what's required after you're cured. Because that physical healing will then lead to what? To social healing. He's now able to reunite with his family, reunite with his friends, reunite in the public square. And now because there's religious healing, the priest has affirmed and endorsed, now he can enter into a temple and worship again. But by touching this leper, I mean, this man has not felt the touch of a human being in probably a long, long time, in the longest time. But by touching this person, the, by caring for this person, this man who is out, Jesus is saying what? You are in. With me, you are in. What he's saying is, look, I'm a king. But the kind of king that I am, I'm an inviting king. I'm a gracious king. I'm a healing king. You know, Lord of the Rings, the hands of the king are healing hands. He's saying, I'm willing to take risks. I'm a risk-taking king. I'm willing to cross every barrier that keeps you from me to get to you, to heal you in every way. What joy. What joy. It's remarkable. What joy. Secondly, by touching this man, what he's doing is he's overturning all the things that we value. What do I mean by that? You see, every society in history, every society has its own way of defining who the winners and the losers are in that culture. If you don't look like this, 
if you don't make this amount, uh, if, you, if you make less than this amount, if you, don't, if you don't get this far in your career, and yet over and over, like a pattern in the Bible, what do we see? We see Jesus Christ in the Gospels. He's reaching out. He's stretching out his hands. He's caring for the losers of society. He's caring for the marginalized. By stretching out his hand, that's an idiom. It's an Old Testament idiom. Really, that means he's demonstrating the power of God. You see Moses in the Old Testament. He's seen doing this over and over in the Bible. So by Jesus stretching out his hands and touching this man, what he's saying is, my power, the power of God, it's, it's, it's not through the strong. It's not through the good looking. It's not through the successful or the wealthy, but through the weak and through the ugly through the losers of the world. So what you see, Jesus, he chooses Peter. He doesn't go choose the consul. He doesn't choose a, a wide-ranged intellectual or, or, or a politician. He chooses Peter, a lowly fisherman. He's touching a leper. If you've ever felt denigrated in your life, socially, um, culturally, if you've ever, ever felt humiliated in your life, if you've ever felt guilty or unclean, shame, if you've ever felt low, it's because you're like the leper. And what happens, your soul becomes damaged. Your, your emotional, uh, there's emotional damage there. There's psychological damage there. And what this passage is saying is, for those of us who've ever been, just experienced the pain of, of social disfranchisement, the pain of just being outcast, the pain of, of guilt and shame in our lives, the pain of feeling unclean and denigrated and the humiliation that comes with that, Jesus is attracted to you. That's what this means. Jesus is attracted to you. He's drawn to you in that pain. He's drawn to you in that outcastness. In fact, it's the only prerequisite to actually seeing the real Jesus. And so the gospel then takes our values, all, our world today, we value wealth and power and status and, and our figures, our physiques, our bodies, our, the way we look, and the gospel turns that around and says, but actually my power is stretched out to those who are weak and ugly and outcast, morally, emotionally broken, psychologically broken. Uh, you know, you may not be, you may not have the intelligence or the wealth or the status or the power but I'm attracted to you, and I am the king of the universe. Thirdly, the gospel, salvation through Jesus, you know you received it when it starts to change the way you look at people, the way you treat people who are very different from you in a way that goes against dealing with people through the lens of power and status and education and wealth and success, but rather through gratitude. Now, as a pastor, I've been pastoring Metro for over 11 years now, as a pastor, I've learned over the years that you cannot trust. Look, I don't care about your theology. I don't care about your race or your personality even. You cannot trust people who wield their power or their gifts, their talents or their looks or their wealth like a gun to show how strong they are. Because you have to know this about the gospel. The gospel alarms us of our sins and disarms us of our strengths. And when it does... I don't care how winsome you were before you came to Jesus. That's the old grid. That winsomeness is a selfish winsomeness. You will be even more winsome today. You will be made new. And it's going to look different. There's a humility there that's genuine. If you know, you know. 
In this church, I mean, we see God doing some amazing things through people who you're like, you look at them, you say, that person has everything, and yet, wow, look at what the gospel is doing. The gospel is changing them inwardly and outwardly. It's palpable. It's powerful. Because the gospel transcends your power. The gospel transcends gifts. The gospel transcends your, your wealth or your looks. The gospel transcends every dimension of your life. And so they're more winsome. They're so winsome. It's, it's, it's as a result that you can see, you can taste it, you can feel it around them. They're very winsome people. Fourthly, think about the leper. I mean, his body is just falling apart. I mean, this hideous, this poor creature desperate, desperate for the touch of a person. He breaks through every barrier at the gasping and the shrieking and the disdain of the other people around him in the public square. What about you? What barriers keep you or are in the way between you getting closer to Jesus? What social or societal rules are, do you need to get past or get over or to break through? Are you willing to risk critique? Are you willing to risk uh, your social standing at work? Maybe you'll lose some allies. I don't know. Are you willing to sacrifice some lifestyle uh, parts of your life? Maybe make some changes in your life to get closer to Jesus. Five, look at the dynamic here between the unclean and the clean. Religion, religious people, they're obsessed with being clean. That's why they stay away. Their goal is to stay away from the dirty people. Their goal is to stay away from people who are unclean. And actually, if you can take that even further, generally speaking, uh, in our world, we're built around, hey, power begets power. So you want to be around power. Wealth, you want to be around people who are wealthy. If, you, if you're really big on the social standing and status, you're just going to be around people with good reputations, you see, and you're going to want that. That's what you're going to want around you. In the Old Testament, even the ceremonial law kept you from touching people, even touching people who were unclean. That's why if you've ever read the Bible in the New Testament, in the the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus talks about a priest and a Levite who bypassed this man who's just bleeding to death on the ground. Why? Because it's their job. If they touch this person, they become unclean. They'd have to go through days and weeks of ceremonial cleansing. And so they bypass him and they they have every right in some ways and justification for that. It's my job. It's my religious, you know, this is my virtue. This is my zeal. It keeps me from being near people who are unclean. You see that? Religion constantly is obsessed with cleanliness. And that's why we're just constantly, a religious person is constantly working to prove that they're good enough, clean enough, worthy enough. Those ceremonial laws keep them from touching those who are unclean because if they did, it would make you unclean. Their uncleanness gets transferred over to you. The theological term for that is imputation. Their, feel, their, their uncleanness gets imputed unto you. But look at Jesus. He stretches out his hand. That represents the power of God. Where does it go? It goes to this leper. He touches the leper. Now, if a rabbi or a religious person uh, in, that, in those ancient times touches something or someone that is unclean, you would have to go through cleansing rituals, ceremonial cleansing rituals to clean yourself. But here, there's no indication where Jesus says, he touches the leper and he goes, oh my gosh, what did I do? Why did I just do that? I'm a rabbi. Now I can't enter into a temple for weeks. Well, gotta go, start my cleansing rituals. You never see him doing that, why? Because Jesus Christ, he doesn't need to purify himself because he is purity. You know what that means? No matter how impure you think you are, 
no matter how much guilt there is inside. Maybe it repels people. No matter how dirty you think you are, no matter how ugly you think you are, even if you're dead, and by the way, commentators, scholars will tell you that anybody who, a leper, the next thing, the only thing worse than being a leper is to be a dead person. That's the level of uncleanness we're talking about here. Even if you were dead, it is no match for Jesus because he is purity. He is, his holiness is so holy. And so when he touches you, you don't make him unclean. He makes you clean. Look at the power, the remarkable power and grace of God in Jesus. Well, how? How does that happen? It's because Jesus' salvation is upward. I mean, how can a sinful person like Peter be brought into Jesus' family? How can an unclean person who's cast out of every ring like this leper be brought in and made clean? Well, the next narrative is the narrative of the paralytic. In verse 17, Jesus is teaching in front of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law uh, from every village in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. So people coming from all over to hear Jesus teach. And in verse 18, there's this man and he's paralyzed. He's immobile. He's on the ground. And his friends, friends, they bring him to this house where Jesus was. But you see, it was so crowded, he couldn't get the guy into the house. They couldn't get him through the door. So what do they do? They climb up to the roof of the house. Verse 19, they go up on the roof. You need to know in ancient times, the roof was connected to the rest of the house in a way by a stairwell, in a way where the roof was used as part of the house. It was like a deck. And what these men do is they bring their friend up onto that deck and they basically tear up the roof and lower this man down. And when Jesus sees this man, in verse 20, he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. What are his friends thinking? I mean, thank you, but it's not why we came. I mean, we tore this house up we're probably going to get sued for what we did. We came to see your power. And what are the Pharisees thinking? Verse 21, they're thinking, well, this is blasphemy. How can you say, how can this man say that he forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins. And in a sense, the Pharisees, they're using verifiable, simple, variable, simple logic. Imagine somebody borrows your car. You have a brand new car. You just bought it, just drove it off the lot. And then somebody needs a car that day. They want to borrow your car and they crash your car. Well, logically speaking, they owe you a new car. They owe you a new car, or they owe you the amount of money that that car is worth. But what if your, your uh, best friend tells them, no, nah, you're good, that debt, let's cancel that debt. You'd be like, well, hold on, you can't do that. You don't have the right to do that. That's not your car. That's my car. Only I can do that. In other words, the only person who can forgive your debt is the person that you committed the debt against. The only person who can forgive your sins is a person that you committed those sins against, you see? And the Pharisees, they're indignant because Jesus looks at this man and he says, all your sins are forgiven. Your sins, capital S, your sins against God. What is he implying? The Pharisees, they knew what he meant. They're saying you can't forgive that kind of debt unless you're saying that that debt is against you. They knew what he meant. What does he mean? One, any sin that we commit, all of our sins are against Jesus. Every lie, every lust, 
Every time you steal, every time you covet, every jealousy, every idol, whether it's wealth or status or power, some of you, it's your family. These aren't bad things per se, but when you hold it up and you say that this is more important than God, it's something that you desire this apart from God, Jesus says, that sin is against me. Secondly, look, to Peter, he says, it's not the fishing that's your problem. And he gives him fish, right? But what he really needed was purpose, meaning, and so he offers him a new life. To the leper, he heals his illness instantly. But because what he really needed was to be in. He wanted the touch, the warmth of human embrace, the warmth of acceptance and approval. But to, so, but, so, and he gives it to him. But to this man, this man needs to walk. This man wants to get up. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't heal him instantly. He says, your sins are forgiven. Why does he do that? And it's because of this. You think your problem is your immobility. You think your problem, this visible problem, you think your problem is the fact that you can't get up, but it's not. I'm going to give you what you really need. You see, we don't like to hear that. If we're honest, we think we know what we need. We do it all the time. When's the last time you've been upset or disappointed or angry from God, with God and you've walked away or maybe been tempted to walk away? Why? Because he doesn't answer your prayers. He doesn't do what you think you need. You see, we get so disappointed. We believe, uh, you know, that, well, hey, we come to God and we say, hey, this is my problem. This is what I really need. We think the problem is our job. We want a new job. We think the problem is our relationship. We want a new relationship. We want that relationship. We think the problem is our home. I need a new house. We think the problem is these things I have. I need more things. We think the problem is our friends. I need new friends. We think the problem is our church. We love living the church. It's leaders, you know, the machine. When you hear, no, the problem is you, we don't like that. We're like, oh, you're triggering me. But Jesus is saying the foundational issue is that you are far from God and you need to be forgiven so that any barrier between you and God is removed. Sin makes you helpless. Sin makes you stuck. Sin paralyzes you. You cannot move. And you cannot save yourself. And we want to believe that it's just an inward issue. We think it's just an inward issue or an outward issue maybe or a mental issue or a physical issue. And Jesus is saying to this man, look, it goes way deeper than that. The problem goes way deeper. And until you deal with the problem of sin, nothing I do is going to make you right because your ultimate problem is spiritual. You need to be forgiven. Peter, he falls to the ground. I'm a sinner. He gets it. Jesus affirms him and brings him in. You see that? That's what really saves him. The leper, he says, I need to be clean. You, will you be willing? And Jesus says, I'm willing. And he, and he does it with a touch and he brings him in. That's what really saves him, you see? But to this paralyzed man, he says, you need my forgiveness. That's where we need to start from the beginning for the real healing to take place. A lot of us, we're looking for healing because we recognize we're broken people and you're looking everywhere else and this passage is calling you to Jesus to the person of Jesus. Seek him on his terms, not on your terms. Verse 22, the Pharisees, they're indignant. And Jesus knows they're indignant. He knows what they're thinking. And, and, and so he asks, well, what's easier, to say you are forgiven or to tell this man to walk? Here's the problem. If you're really honest, we all believe that the real power in this passage, this passage doesn't work unless Jesus helps this guy to walk. 
What's good? What's so good about him forgiving him? How does this passage work unless he actually heals him? That's what we're really thinking. When we have a problem, we tend to pray and ask for help. We say, please, I mean, you have the power to help me. Will you help me? That's why we get so disappointed because we are looking for the same Jesus as this man's friends and as, this, as the Pharisees in this passage. We don't want a Jesus that goes deeper than our visible problems. That's why when we suffer, we so often miss Jesus and we miss the point. Jesus is saying the real power is placing yourself in a position. It's placing yourself in a position where you're able to say you're a sinner. The real, the real power is placing yourself in a position where you can say you are unclean and I can heal you. Real power is to be able to say, to put yourself in a position where you say you are stuck and paralyzed. Sin has got you in a, in a helpless condition. But I can help you. That is power. He says, no one can do that. No one can do that. How is Jesus able to do that? When Jesus Christ goes to the cross, how does he forgive our debt? I mean, somebody's got to pay. Somebody has to take on the debt. Jesus Christ takes on our debt. So in verse 24, Jesus says, so you know that I have the authority to forgive sins. And then he looks at the paralyzed man and he says, get up, take up your mat and go home. And in verse 25, he does. And in verse 26, everyone is praising God and they're filled with awe because they saw his power. How does he do that? I mean, what does all this mean? For this man to get up, Jesus has to go down. For this man to be able to walk, Jesus has to be laid down. For this man to be free, Jesus will be arrested. For this man to experience the ultimate freedom, Jesus Christ has to be nailed to the cross. For this leper to be clean, Jesus becomes dirty. For this leper then to come in, Jesus is cast out of the city. Do you know he was crucified outside Jerusalem, outside the city? He becomes the outcast. Jesus was driven out of the town and cast out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we may, we may become the righteousness of God. In him, union with Christ, in union with Jesus, we have his righteousness. That word righteousness means that you are acceptable. You are provable by God. In other words, you're in. How do we get in? Jesus becomes sin. So on the cross, Jesus Christ completely, he's completely rejected by people. They're hurling insults at him. They betrayed him. They're just jeering and mocking him. But when he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, this is the ultimate rejection. This is the ultimate abandonment. This is the ultimate uncleanness. I am being consumed by the wrath of God, which is pouring out on me because I am unclean and no one wants to touch me. No one wants to get rid of me. Get, get near me. This is the ultimate uncleanness. I'm suffering the curse of sin. God has left me for dead. I'm as good as dead. And so I'm suffering the humiliation of total uncleanness. So much that even God has turned his face from me. And so Jesus takes on the ultimate. I mean, he is alone. It is the one time in the history of the world. I mean, we may feel we're alone, but we still have our families maybe. 
We may feel alone, but you still have somebody in your life that you can talk to. Jesus Christ in that moment was totally and completely cosmically alone in the universe. No one was going to touch him or care. That is emotional pain. That is like the ultimate psychological damage. That is the eternal distance from intimacy with God. Yes, there's physical brokenness. Yes, his body is falling apart like the leper. Yes, he's enduring the humiliation and the mockery and the ridicule and the disdain and the gasp. This is disgusting. This man's bleeding to the death and his body is falling apart. And they're saying, no, keep him away. This is gross. This is disgusting. And they're mocking him and ridiculing him. No one's going to touch him except when they beat him. Why? Why? You see, the disciples, they left everything to follow Jesus. They left their careers behind. Yes, Jesus Christ left the Father in heaven. He left his throne. He was king, and he left it behind. He emptied himself. You see? The king, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. And so on the cross, he left it all, including intimacy with his father, the touch and the warmth of the father. He became unclean. Why? So we could be clean. He was nailed to the cross. Why? So we could be free. Jesus Christ, the most beautiful person that ever walked the earth, the most perfect person that ever walked the earth became ugly. Why? So we could be made beautiful in him. And we're looking at our mirrors and dissatisfied with ourselves. Jesus Christ became unclean so we could be clean. And we look at the mirror and we say, I'm too guilty. I can't walk into a church. How could God love me? Jesus Christ became nailed to the cross so we can be free. And we say, no, this power, the sin has too much power. It's got a hold on me. Jesus Christ became cosmically weak and helpless. Why? So that we could have ultimate power and we say, I can't beat this. In union with Christ, his power is in you. You see? Jesus Christ became sin, sin, sin. He didn't sin. The Bible says that he has become the curse of sin. So he could take away our disease and cure us in our helplessness so that we could be made holy with God. Look at the gracious, compassionate, powerful, healing love of Jesus on the cross for you. He's crossed every barrier to take on our sin and our disease and our helplessness for us. Do you get him? Do you understand and see him, the real Jesus? Why are we always trying to prove ourselves? You know why? Because deep inside, we know that there's something broken. There's something inadequate. It's at the root. It's our sin. Why are we desperately looking for intimacy with other people? It is such a big hold in our lives, no matter what culture, what society you're in. Why? Why do we so desperately need to be in? Because soulfully, we know there's a need for that healing touch. There's something about the touch of the person, of, of people in our lives that, that's healing. There's, there's a deep sinfulness, a deep uncleanness, a deep helplessness. And this passage is telling us, look to Jesus. He is the ultimate healer because when you do, it will save you. You are in. You are clean. You are free. How do you apply this? 
Um, I'm just gonna go through this very quickly. One, he goes to this paralyzed man, doesn't heal him immediately. He says, here's what you really need. Jesus isn't gonna answer all your prayers on your terms. Submit to his leadership. Submit to his lordship. Submit to his agenda, his priorities, his mission. Secondly, look at Peter. He cries out. Look at the leper. He cries out. Look at the paralytic. No words. You don't actually hear a single word from the paralytic. He's so over. There's no words. He's just there. And he can't get it out. And yet Jesus gives him what he really needs. You know what that means? He hears your sigh. He hears your groans. He knows you that deeply. Look at his kindness. Go to him. You can trust him. Trust his word. Thirdly, when you see Jesus cross every boundary to come to you, surely you will be willing to forsake your status and your wealth and your friendships to cross boundaries. One, to get to Jesus. I mean, maybe that means you gotta change your lifestyle. But two, so you can touch other people who are different than you, socially or financially or culturally or racially. You can empty yourself. You can sacrifice your wealth and your status and your reputation. The more you start to get Jesus, the more you see what he sacrificed to come to you You'll see Jesus, you will love Jesus. You will sacrifice, number one, to go to him, and then to seek those whom he sought. The more you see what he left and how he loves you, you will love him, and you will leave things behind for him as well. Let's pray.